I'm just an individual, living a miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible, totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal, used to be a criminal, living so minimal, but things have changed in my life, it's going through different intervals, finding that balance is significantly difficult, timing is everything, so my timing is critical, rhyming is literal, the unforgettable, that's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable, I give respect to you, know that I am respectable, I've always wanted acceptance, that acceptable? I am the rival expected to be exceptional And I'm a grown man, handle no business like a professional I am incredible, Leo conventional And you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional Welcome to NC Raw My name is Steve Steen host of Recovery Always podcast, back for episode nine. Got an amazing crew in the house tonight. We are a man down, but we have our fill-in host for the next 40 days, the Lioness. I'll be going out there, but yeah. We have a a guest host for the next 20 days, (laughs) the Lioness. Miss Caitlin Ledford. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. Always a joy to be here. Thanks for joining us. I was kind of surprised that you uh, accepted the offer to come in tonight after the day you've had. Yes, it's been a very, uh, very busy day, and this is definitely a big seat to fill. But I'm, I, I know I've got, I've got everything I need to fill it. This is the third time you've sat at this table, isn't it? Third time, yes, sir. She's a leader, leader of the pack. Three Pete. Three Pete. Yep. A couple of guests sitting down with us today. Uh, the first is my homeboy, my role model, somebody that I really look up to in the recovery community, and somebody that has supported me along my uh, journey of recovery, Mr. James Skelton. What's up? What's going Happy on, brother? To be here. This is exciting. Tell our listeners about yourself. All right. Uh, so, yeah, I'm James Skelton, uh, originally from Houston. I am a person in long-term recovery, which means that I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a drug in almost nine years. Celebrate nine Excellent. years sir. next month. Yeah. Yes, sir. <clears throat> yeah. Took a long time to get there. But uh, through my recovery and you know, early experiences of helping others and took a summer job in a treatment center, decided to go back to school for counseling. Been working in Houston for about five years in an outpatient setting, working with an amazing group of families and teenagers at a program called Cornerstone. What's up, Cornerstone? Um, Those are my peeps. And uh, moved out here to Western North Carolina about three years ago. Got a job working at a wilderness treatment program called Seuss of the Carolinas. Working with adolescents that have primary substance abuse issues. I'm a recovery coach out there and also just started a private practice and do a group at uh, another adult uh, treatment program. Busy man. uh, Busy man. Student. uh, Student, second year in grad school, just finished my first year. Bro. Halfway there uh, for master in social work. 
So amazing yeah man impressive the amazing james <laughs> very privileged to have you at the table with us today i'm privileged to be here man we also have sherry barker joining Hello. us hey everybody i'm sherry barker um here tonight to talk about the things i learned um during dealing with my youngest daughter's addiction and mental health issues um, my daughter beth died when she was 28 years old after using heroin that was laced with fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Um, her journey set me on my own journey of learning and struggling. And after she died, I was um, overwhelmed by people asking me to talk with their friends whose children were also struggling. And I kept trying to find places where people could go for help and it got to a point where I just couldn't find anywhere to send people who didn't fit a 12-step recovery normal kind of programs. And one day I heard a story about a group of women who helped a, a mother who was in distress, and I just thought, why am I waiting for someone else to fix this? So I started a support group called Mother to Mother. Um, James has been kind enough to come and talk with us, and I hope he'll come back another night. He oh, was yeah. very helpful. So I'm really glad to be here tonight and to share with you all, and I appreciate you having me. Thank you, Sherry. I appreciate you joining us and very courageous act to sit down behind the microphone and <laughs> share your perspective with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about, before we kind of like get into it, tell us a little bit about what that story that you heard that led to you um, it was, doing that. I think it was like, internet viral. Um, there was a woman who, a young pregnant woman traveling with her toddler child. She was in an airport and the toddler was just like tantruming out and obviously overwhelmed. The woman got overwhelmed and she was sitting on the floor crying with her child. And instead of a, like a typical response that we get today, people rolling their eyes or just making rude comments, a group of other women just kind of gently surrounded them. And, and one person gave the toddler a juice box and another gave the toddler a toy to play with. And someone made sure that the mother had water to drink and they helped her get into a seat. And it was just this outpouring of compassion and helpfulness. And that's the kind of action that changes people's lives or even just makes a day better, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's all it takes just to get someone through one day. And that was the day I decided I needed to do something instead of waiting for someone else to fix a problem. Wow. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is. Beautiful. I love that because if I know, like, uh, me and Caleb all the time are telling people, you know, if you come to a situation with one ounce of judgment, there's no room left for 100% love. Exactly. And that's the only way you're going to be able to... Um, overcome any of this is through love mm -hmm. yeah it's a great analogy for the recovery community yeah. you know yeah i really think it is so what's been going on james <clears throat> with what <laughs> <laughs> it's the last uh first week of being off on the spring semester how'd you what'd you do how'd you what'd you spend your time doing the last the last week out of school you get to do anything fun? I've been to a baseball game. Yeah. <laughs> I've hung out a lot with uh -huh. my dog. I've cleaned 
my house, nice. which really needed it. <laughs> um, pulled up weeds in my yard and slept in a lot. Yeah. It's been nice. Awesome. Yes. Oh, what was your day like today, Kaylin? Oh, goodness. <laughs> my day has been amazing. Uh, we sent, had to send off for Caleb today at the Kadua. Uh, mounds in Bryson City so we was up early running around doing that and actually I have to um, say I was surprised when I showed up about 10 minutes till 10 o'clock to see that he was already there on on time well actually you know this morning first thing he had to do was we had to go down so he could see his PO gotcha and make sure that everything was lined up for him to be able to do this and as it turns out everything was lined up of course you know he's going to drug test him drug test him but it didn't take as long as what you know it could have took longer so we got down there on time um had a bunch of signs we had made together it was awesome like the chief came out the council members there's a lot of community support out there um, the kids that he, you know, goes up to the school, um, Cherokee High School, and he's involved with them. They were there. Uh, our our recovery family from Alanishki was there. They all loaded up on buses and vans and come down there. And then, uh, I mean, just all the people that you know are are reaching out to us all the time, showing us support. It was it was awesome. Um, elders, we had elders that came out to show his support a uh, wlos was out there so you know of course loving that media Huge, coverage man. yeah Huge. and been really busy with all that and plus everybody was wanting our t-shirts can i yeah. show our t-shirts when I, yeah go ahead show it show to the camera when i pulled up right there was probably i don't know 50 people 40 50 people and caitlin had the back of back of the truck opened up and she was just slanging t-shirts out of the back of the truck there was a line awesome. I, I had, to, I had to wait in line to buy my t-shirt <laughs> So like I told Caleb that I said look at look at this I said I have all these people like messaging me asking me if I still got am I good and I'm like that's how the language was that we used whenever we still yeah. out there mm-hmm. and I was like we're not I'm not peddling drugs anymore I'm peddling T-shirts about hope recovery <laughs> You're the hope plug now the hope yeah plug, feeling that hope yeah. It's, <laughs> Oh, goodness. It was amazing. I mean, t- tears of joy were shed. I'm just seeing our NC Raw family out there. Yes, ma'am. Loved it. It was I a was... beautiful send-off. I mean, the the community just showed up. Yeah. You kind of shared awesome. that, like, you The know. Holy Spirit was there. Yeah. The Holy Spirit was there, and I know that he's in good hands, and it's it's going to be good. It's, it's there's I mean, this is just the beginning, but, there, I mean, there's going to be a lot of trials that he's going to go through, a lot of... Uh, mental things that he's gonna go through, and but it's it's exciting. I mean, it's I'm very one proud girlfriend. I know that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we get started, we have a few announcements to make. We want to uh, recognize some community events that are happening. You know, things and places that people can do in the Western North Carolina area. Uh, The first is here in Jackson County. The Jackson County Public Library is hosting a series focused on health issues that affect our community. Um, This coming Tuesday is, I think, the third or fourth event in that series. 
Um, Tuesday, May 15th at 6 p.m., they are hosting a mental health awareness and suicide prevention program. Uh, And what that's going to look like is they're just going to take a rounded approach on topics, uh, showing multiple perspectives and multiple angles of how to receive treatment and how to receive help. Um, And then, again, it's an ongoing series. Each week they're doing something different. Um, Followed up, I think, in June they're going to be – they're doing one – um, focused on substance abuse and the opioid epidemic, which NC Ross kind of like helping them plan and organize that. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, definitely if that's something that like touches you or you might have a little bit of interest in, be sure to check that out this coming Tuesday at the Jackson County Public Library, right on Main Street, the old courthouse up on the hill downtown. Uh, the second is this coming Saturday, May 19th. May 19th. Refuge Recovery Asheville That's right. is hosting a day-long retreat. Mm-hmm. Who's going to be there? Andrew Chapman. Andrew he's Chapman? A, uh-huh. Andrew Chapman. He's a teacher with Against the Stream, so he'll be coming out. I was hoping that you were going to say you were going to be there. Like, both of you guys oh, were like, I am going to be there. I will be there. <laughs> I am going to be there. Yeah, that's I'll be there. That's I'm, I'm registered. Yeah. I'm totally going to be there, too. The Kaluwe Sangha <laughs> is going to be uh, caravanning out, all three of us. And Andrew Chavin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it is this coming Saturday, May 19th from 8 a.m. till 4.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. 8 to 9 is yoga. Yep. And the retreat will start at 9 a.m., if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. That's right. It is Andrew Chapman, the executive director and guiding teacher at Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, there's going to be meditation, Dharma talks, breakout groups, and then yoga in the morning to support your practice, strengthen the Sangha connection, and expand your knowledge of the Dharma. So if you're interested in that, you could register. There are limited spots available. However, I checked before we went on, and it did look like there was they were still accepting uh, reservations. That is through the Refuge Recovery Asheville Facebook page. There's a link pinned to the top for that event. So. Mm. Uh, definitely get on there and check that out. And the last event we want to um, want to recognize is the North Carolina Justice Center in Asheville. They're hosting a listening session for individuals who have been directly impacted by probation and incarceration, a topic that's come up at this table often. Mm-hmm. Uh, presenters will share valuable information about efforts to reduce the barriers to successful reentry facing individuals with criminal records. The event is designed to create a safe listening space for impacted individuals to share their stories and learn tools for advocacy. Um, that event is this coming Monday, May 21st, from 1 to 3 p.m., and that's at the Goodwill Industries Workforce Development Center, which is at 1616 Patton Avenue in Asheville. You got something? Oh, got no, an announcement? I just remembered it. I do have an announcement. Come actually, on. But, um, what you got? Um, <clears throat> this coming Friday, uh, Chloe Collins and Monica Duncan, they're um, two students from Smoky Mountain High School, and uh, they're doing a, a 5K mm. about uh, mental health awareness and um, 
what else? And that's recovery. something that I you mean, guys. Are... Uh, it, they're doing everything. Like it's awareness about substance use, suicide, mental health. Um, they they did this huge project for their health class about, and they wanted folk. They've been doing it all about recovery and you know raising awareness for those uh, issues and. That's part of, like, we sponsor, Res Hope sponsored them, um, helping them get their T-shirts made. They've been selling T-shirts, handing out these bracelets about mental health awareness. Um, me and Caleb went up there and talked at their school last week. That was awesome. And anyways, it's Friday, starting at 5, and uh, it's kid-friendly. It's just, it's a 5K, like, walk. You don't have to run it or anything, but, you know... If you guys can come up there and come support my girls, they're doing amazing things and they're they're so young, but they're so smart and brilliant and talented and amazing. They just it just fills my heart with joy. <laughs> and definitely a beautiful thing taking place. So that's Smoky Mountain High School in yeah. Silver, North Carolina, this yep. Friday from five to seven PM. And there's gonna be stuff for kids to do. Activities for yeah, kids. Activities for kids. Awesome. That's a fantastic job those girls are doing down there. They were they were there this morning. Yeah, right? they actually came to, to see the send off. Caleb off. Yeah. Awesome. We've also asked our viewers and listeners to share with us their anniversaries of recovery because we want to recognize people that are that are successful in the recovery and that are thriving in recovery and, and doing good things. So we do have a couple of anniversaries to share with our listeners. The first is someone who's also kind of dear to the recovery community on this campus. She's been the uh, student intern this past semester for Catamounts for Recovery, Rosemary Yelton of Asheville, celebrated eight years a couple days ago, May wow. May eighth. Wow! Awesome. awesome. Way to go, Rosemary. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. And then also the second anniversary that we have, somebody who else is very instrumental in the collegiate recovery efforts, not just here on this campus, but across the entire state of North Carolina. And that's Chris Campow, who who works for addiction professionals in North Carolina, um, really doing a lot of work specifically for collegiate recovery. He will be celebrating 12 years, May 18th. Wow. Awesome. That's amazing. Good job, guys. Yeah. Keep it up. Can I give a couple recovery anniversary shout outs? Um, Two of my very dear friends, my Caniac friend, Lizzie B., recently celebrated four years in recovery. Awesome. And our really dear friend from over in Knoxville, Miss Elliot, also recently celebrated four years, and she is a freaking rock star. Nice. She's amazing. You told us a lot about her the other night. I did. Met. I did. Looking forward to conversating with her potentially in the future. I know she's excited about it. Yeah. So I want to thank you for nice. inviting us out to your house, right? Yeah, that every, was cool. Every episode, it, it had a blast. Every episode, we try to meet with our guests and kind of discuss and plan, like, what's the show going to look like? What are our objectives? What are... What do we want? What message do we want to deliver to our viewers and listeners? And so logistically, we are trying to like figure it out because James lives in Black Mountain. I'm way over here in Cullowhee. And so we decided on a central location, which happened to be your house. Which happened to be my house and my amazing deck that my yes. amazing husband built. And shout out, shout out to Bill. Shout out Bill, the deck oh, yeah. builder. 
I have to tell you something special about that deck. The driving force to get that deck built was to have a place to have my daughter's memorial garden. Hmm. And I think I can honestly say I probably was hitting the wall of sanity with how hard I pushed to get it done in time for her birthday last year. But Hmm. um, Bill Rhodes is a trooper, and he got it done for us. So it's a really special place. Yeah, you could feel it out there, actually. It's just peace. It's just peace there. Yeah, that's beautiful. It was definitely, I, I've talked about this, I think, last episode when I spoke to Frida Sailor, but like doing this show has like become a part of my recovery and meeting all these amazing individuals, not just at this table, but like one-on-one and preparing for this, like really like supports me and like where I'm at. Um, I kind of shared with Courtney and James a little bit earlier that like I've been kind of struggling a little bit, like just dealing with like a little, like just, I don't know, just in a funk kind of, I guess you could say. And like the last two weeks, like meeting, meeting with you, Sherry, and then also meeting with Frida Sailor the week before really like lifted me up after that, uh, after that conversation. So uh, tons of love to you for that invitation. Mm. I also have kind of a funny story that happened to me on my way home from that. Uh Oh, from your house. It, um, so it was Saturday may was it may 11th or 12th and which happens to be graduation day right and so i had a long day i got up early because our phenomenal executive producer and engineer courtney happened to be walking across that stage Go graduating. Courtney. congrats yeah and so we Do went to graduation <laughs> went to graduation went to work and then drove out to your house that night, had a good conversation for a couple hours and drove back. And I think I rolled back into Kaluuya here around 11 p.m. or so. And for the first time in my life, um, I was pulling up to right. I was passing through campus and I came around a curve right before I turned onto my little mountain road. Boom. What is it? Bear. Bear. No. No? Checkpoint. Oh. <laughs> checkpoint, right? And I've always heard about these checkpoints that they do here in Cullowee, right on 107. Oh. And I've never seen one. I've never been through one. But like all the kids on campus talk about them. And like, I just have always heard about it. And for the first time in my life, like I totally just came around that corner. And I just like had not an ounce of fear in my life. <laughs> I just rolled up to the officer. I handed him my ID. I thanked him for his service, thanked him for what they were doing out there. And I was just like, and you know, it was 11 o'clock at night. There wasn't anybody else out on the roads, but I was like, there wasn't an ounce of fear. I was like, yeah, man, I got this. Like that's, I, awesome. that's recovery, bro. Yeah. Yeah. That's recovery. Five, so it's just a different kind of bear. Yeah. Different kind yeah. of bear. Actually, it was like five state trooper bears, <laughs> but <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Awesome. Listen, the same night, me yeah. and my friend Rachel Taylor went through a booze it or lose it yeah. out on the four lanes whenever you're coming back from Silva, coming, mm-hmm. um, I guess, it, what is it, 19? Anyways, there's a huge booze it or lose it. And so, like, I'm like, she starts screaming. It's like, ah, and I was like, what are you freaking out about? And then we <laughs> pull up, and I'm excited, like, trying to lean over so I can – I'm already got my hand out trying to shake their hand from the yeah. passenger seat because she's driving. And she was like, I think there was three of them we had to go through. And I, m- me and my lips, I was like, thank you for your service. And we got through it. And she's like, 
Caitlin, I didn't even get to show him my license. And I was excited about being able to do that. <laughs> but no, I, that is, that's an amazing feeling to not, yeah. to not fear that anymore. It's the little things that like recovery brings to your life. Like I totally can't remember back home in Florida. They do them like every weekend, like DUI checkpoints every weekend. And like, I can totally remember like just turning, turning a corner and boom, it's there. And just like hiding stuff and mm-hmm. freaking out and like, Rolling the windows down, spraying stuff, whatever. <laughs> just like this time was just like, let's do this, man. Like I, I was, I was grateful that they were there, yes. you know, as Absolutely. opposed to like living in fear. So yeah, um, yeah, that happened. That's awesome. That yeah, was pretty cool. Good story, good stuff. So Sherry, Steve, why are we here? The amazing, Sherry. the amazing Sherry is here to talk about her amazing daughter Elizabeth Jean. Um. Let me just roll with it. Let's roll with it. Um, I'll tell you a lot of the good things about her first before we go down the darker roads. She was an absolutely stunningly beautiful woman, the kind of girl who turned heads. But she didn't know that. I used to love it when I would meet her somewhere for dinner, and I'd be there in the restaurant ahead of her, and I'd watch her walk through, and the heads would just turn. And she was just oblivious. She just had a smile on her face for her mama. But she was kind and loving, and she always tried to help anybody she could help. Um, She was a hard worker. By the time she was 18 years old, she was the youngest female manager of a chain of small restaurants in in Western North Carolina. Um, Her stores consistently had the highest ratings. She was really proud of herself working up the management chain like that for someone who didn't finish high school. Um, She had big dreams. Um, She was proud of the fact that she owned her own car and she had her own apartment and all her own furniture. Um, She was the very beloved baby sister in our family, and she just adored her brother and sister. Um... And then she just kind of got lost. So, leading up to that point, how was your the family dynamics like specifically y'all's relationships? Were you? Um, we were all very close. Mm-hmm. Um, I had moved away for a few years. My parents were um, reclining or reclining, declining in health, and I moved away to be near them. And when I moved back here to Asheville. I actually was living with Beth for a while, and, um, you know, we spent holidays together. Some of my most cherished pictures are of the last time that she and Katie, my older daughter, she and Katie and I got together to bake holiday cookies, and they just went crazy with uh, breaking all the rules. Why can't we have <laughs> butterflies for Christmas cookies? Well, we can. Um, you know, she made her sister a Christmas cookie that was a stocking filled with poop. Uh, (laughs) You know, they just, they just had fun because it it was the first time we'd made cookies that when they weren't little and they could just do what they wanted with all the colors. But I mean, we spent holidays together and we did things together and, or we just hung out for no reason. And, um, my last really solid good memories with her and Katie, we had a girl's day at, at a spa one day and that was just an amazing time. And that was not long before I knew she was in trouble. So knowing what you know now, 
at what point did things kind of start to change? And then at what point did you realize that things had started to change? Um, I know now that Beth was using drugs from the time she was a young teenager, and I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if other people hid it from me or if she was just that good at hiding it. I originally thought that she started using when she was around 17 or 18. So now I know that she was using them much younger than that. Um, When I realized how bad things were was in 2011. I got a phone call from a stranger one night that um, Beth had overdosed and they couldn't wake her up. And I went to her house. Her roommates were there. We were all trying to wake up. I had called 911. By the time the police and an ambulance got there, she was up and moving around, sort of. And the APD officer pulled me aside and said, I need you to know something. I need you to look at your daughter's arms. And and she was insisting that was the first time she had ever used a needle. And he said, "I, I need you to realize that no one uses a needle for the first time without hesitation marks. She knew what she was doing. And it was not long after that that um, she lost her job, and things just went downhill really fast from there. Yeah, James, from your professional experience, does that seem to be like a common pattern to where like the the family or parents might not know about it, and then yeah, just kind of find out really, this is this- really fast, really quickly, like. This, this is, is the story on. that you yeah. hear over and over and over again, and it's scary, you know, because um, it does seem to sneak up on families, um, you know. Um, I don't think my parents and family knew yeah. what was going on with me for a long time until, you know, everything busted loose. That's what I was going to say. I mean, that sounds so similar to my story, Um and the national average age is 11 mm-hmm. that people start, or ki- kids. Mm-hmm. It's kids, young. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he hit it. Uh, Middle school. And then yeah. when they did find out, you know, like like you said, they, they made it seem like, oh, that's the first, that's the first time I've ever done that. That's how, that's how I did it. You're right. It's the same, same story. And this time. question came up, I think, in a previous show with Richie and you, and I'll ask you two, like, why do you think that is, that like that they're not honest from the get-go like or why do you think they're able to get away with it well i I mean i think that for people that get like hold get a hold of addiction right or Mm -hmm. addiction gets a hold of them that it's it's a meaningful thing to them i mean you know it provides comfort it provides um you know peace it it takes it is able to numb people out of the discomfort that they're feeling maybe it's a way to connect to people maybe Mm -hmm. it's it's giving them everything that they look for Mm -hmm. and um so you know when that's threatened of course you're going to protect it it's not personal it's not people are i I just want to lie to my parents or my friends no it's it's a necessity it's yeah. to protect it. A past guest shared that the first time he got caught or in trouble with his parents, 
that his mom had always told him like, listen, if anything comes up, you can just like be honest with me and I'll, you know, tell me anything and I won't, you know, I won't hold judgment towards you or, you know, so he got into a little bit of trouble and he came to her and said, Hey, this has been going on. And she totally like attacked him and like didn't react the way that she said that she would. Um, so it broke that trust right right from the get-go so then when things started getting out of control she was the last person that he would go to because Mm -hmm. of that trust being broken from the very beginning another reason why uh we have to kill stigma you know for people to be able to have the understanding and compassion and be able to respond rather than react, you know? Exactly. If somebody, if your family member comes up to you and says, hey, I was diagnosed with cancer, you know, you're not going to explode on that person. Um, It's the same thing. It's, you know, it's a... How could you? Right. How How could could you do this to our family, you know? Or how could you do (laughs) this to me, you know? But it is. Right. It's the same thing. It is. And even, you know, you're talking about, you know, the, the... parent aspect of the uh, stigma you know eliminating that for them to be able to for understanding to show compassion but also breaking that stigma will allow the person who's struggling with that to even come forth and say something to even ask for help because a lot of times you're like oh I'm an addict I'm a junkie I can't go and tell anybody about this because you know I'm I'm worthless I'm going to be treated like nothing and that's you know, hard to break that too. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a, a slightly different perspective. In in Beth's case, she started displaying some um, odd behavior when she was a preteen, mm. and when it got so concerning, um, I took her to a doctor, and I took her to a counselor, and I wound up taking her to a psychiatrist, who all told me she'll outgrow this. This is just, she's just acting out. She'll outgrow this. And that was at a time when no one seemed to have a grasp on mental health (coughs) issues showing in young children. Mm. So I honestly believe that she had undiagnosed mental health issues Mm -hmm. and that those played a a part in her attempts to self-medicate by using drugs. Did you know that at the time? Or has it taken, you know, going through all this to come to that realization it that has, there probably was mental? Yes. Um, at the time, you know, I I was a young mom, and I, at that time in my life, had total trust in doctors. I thought they knew what they were talking about. These are the people you're supposed to go to. And so I shut down my own instincts. I thought something was wrong, but these people I trusted told me that she was okay And so I just tried to help her find other ways to cope with the things that she seemed to have trouble with. And that was not effective. And I wish I had, this is one of a million situations where I wish I had known then what I know now. So along Beth's story, at what point did you really have a realization that I have to do something now or that she, she really needs help now? Um, things escalated really quickly after she lost her job. Um, 
She lost her job because of her use or Yes, behaviors. she did. She lost her job because she uh, tested hot okay. at work mm-hmm. after someone accused her of being um, high while she was working. She um, she was in a uh, violent relationship with a person who had um, a history of uh, dealing, and their relationship continued to escalate and the situation with all of the people they were living with continued to escalate till they were finally evicted from the house they were living in. And for the first time, she was homeless. Um, it was not long after that that she disappeared for long enough that I filed a missing persons report. Um, and that was the first time I called the police about Beth. She looked at it as me calling the police on her. But um, she responded really quickly when it was a police officer calling her saying, you know, your mother's worried about you and you need to get in touch with your family. But, I mean, she just, she was homeless for a long time. She bounced from house to house. Um, It was apparent from things that I knew were happening to her that she was in trouble. And she came to live with me briefly after she wound up in the hospital. She had a heart infection, uh, an infection of the lining of her heart, and she was in the hospital for a week and was supposed to come back to my house when they discharged her. And her dad gave her $40 because she had to pay the guy where she'd been living so she could get her stuff. So she left the hospital with $40 to go and buy more drugs from her pimp, basically, and um, two days later showed up at my house, and I allowed her to stay with me, but she hadn't been there for very long before the first time I found where she had hidden her supplies in what she called her kit. She had a little makeup bags. There were two of them in my house, and at that point, I thought, okay, if she gets arrested, this will scare her, and she'll do something. I called the police because, you know, paraphernalia, this is bad stuff. Come on. In my house. Yeah. yeah. And um, two APD officers came, and they were really kind to me, and they were very kind to Beth. And one officer pulled me aside and explained to me that he could arrest my daughter and take her property as evidence. But what would happen then would be he would be... She would be released within a couple of hours. So she would be an addict wanting a fix in downtown Asheville with no clean needles. And that was probably the day that my mind just was completely opened about how much trouble she was in, you know, and, and the the whole clean needle thing is something that as a mother, I mean, I had already been doing internet research and trying to find out what I could about substance abuse and cause it was, it was not something, it was not a world I knew anything about. No one said anywhere, don't take clean needles from an addict. Yeah. And, um, it was, uh, it absolutely floored me to hear that. And what year was this? That was 2011. 2011. Okay. And things continued to escalate. And at that time, like, that's right when, like, the whole opioid epidemic really started escalating. Yeah. So there wasn't a whole lot of information mm-hmm. out there. 
No. As far as like this type of situation, things have drastically changed. So I'm asking you this now that, um, again, knowing what you know now, how do you feel about that decision that you made or where's what's your stance on that um well that that situation went on Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks later um i did have to have beth removed from my house when i came home one night and i realized she had stolen my camera she had stolen some things from her brother and I was going to call the police to remove her, and she left, but she left in an absolute storm of anger and and probably fear on her part. And she was texting me about how she was going to kill herself. And the only thing I could think of doing, and some friends recommended that I do this, was I went to the magistrate's office to have her involuntarily committed. Mm-hmm. And, and in retrospect, I'm glad I did that. Sure. I'm glad I took that step. Also, also probably one of the most difficult things that you had to do in that process. It was. It really was very hard. It was it was very scary from a parent perspective mm-hmm. to to I mean she wasn't a child, she was an adult and so that changes the rules and that's a thing parents need to remember. If you discover that your child who is a legal adult is using drugs, you are playing by very different rules and you don't get to control things. If you turn your child over to the police, or if you have them IV seed, they are playing by adult rules. And you have to realize that and accept the consequences of that. And sometimes it's the right choice to make. Certainly. So that was, a, I guess that kind of can come to this question was like, how do you find acceptance? And I guess it goes back to the, um, you know, like with the cancer kind of situation, like, Finding that compassion. How do you find that acceptance when letting somebody come into your home that you know is going through, you know, hasn't found recovery yet? And also, like, how do you know how to set necessary boundaries? Hmm. Um, I have to I have to tell one more little story before I answer that question. Okay. Because a year later, my relationship with Beth changed when I had. Remember, she used to live in the house I lived in. So that's the address she gave everybody. And one day I had three drug dealers show up at my door and they were threatening my life because she owed them money. And that also opened my eyes to how scary this situation could be. Um, I was just then getting to a point of understanding addiction as a disease. And I learned, it took, a, it took a lot of time and, you know, taking different steps. But I learned to set boundaries. And I learned that it was okay to set boundaries to protect myself and my loved ones. And that I could do that and still let my daughter know that I loved her and I supported her. And even if she wasn't allowed to come into my home, I would do everything I could to help her when she was ready to get help. And there was rarely a day that I did not send her a text or a message or call her. You know, even if I was texting her cute kitten pictures, just so she knew I was thinking of her. So, I mean, it's just a, it's, I'm sure it's, 
it's different for every parent and every family. You just have to keep your heart open and understand that you can do that while establishing boundaries. Absolutely. That made me think of, when you just said that, that made me think of like when people use the term tough love, you know, like, oh, I had to, which in some cases work. I mean, yeah. I got showed some tough love and, you know, maybe that's what I needed. But, you know, that, that comes back to that love and compassion, you know. And just real quick, just shout out to Caleb, just because I know he would have done this. Um, breaking the stigma, you know, continuing to use the term addict. Are we, mm-hmm. I mean, at that time, yes, did we go, did we experience, did we go through that experience with, you know, the disease of addiction? But was that what we were? Well, I mean, that was still your daughter. That yes. was still, you know, yeah. she she was experience, going through an experience of substance use but that was still your daughter and when we can break that stigma that's whenever we can actually start um breaking chains and to piggyback on that you know i think that is what allowed you to continue to keep your heart open and send the pictures of the kittens and just be like will you go out to lunch with me Mm -hmm. and like you know because you saw your daughter you didn't see an addict, no. you know, yeah. and, um, you know, it's, you know, like somebody asked, you know, how do you continue to accept? You don't have to accept everything in your life. You don't have to accept it's, somebody bringing drug dealers over to your yeah. home. You know, you're going to draw a line there. You don't have to accept people stealing stuff out of your house. Exactly. And you don't, I don't have to accept someone who I love destroying themselves I don't have to sit around and accept that and mm-hmm. watch that. Yeah. You know, I don't have to participate in that. I can speak my truth. I can have boundaries. You know, the definition, one definition of boundaries is to what extent or limit will I allow or accept certain behaviors around me, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Nowhere in that does it say turn off your love or compassion or stop seeing someone as who they really are as you know see them for who we know they are you know well and i think that a lot of people my age i'm 51 i think a lot of people who are my age and like i remember when tough love came out have a really wrong concept of what tough love is they think it's completely shutting the door and you just forget about that person until they do what you want them to do And you don't acknowledge that there's someone who's struggling and in pain and scared and lonely. And so my concept of tough love is also that it's hard on the parent. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it was just as hard on me probably and on, on Beth's siblings to create those boundaries. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you a little bit. I was like, what was throughout that process up until that point, had her relationship with the siblings also changed? It did. Okay. Were they kind of like, were, was the was it like the family versus Beth, or was everybody like on the same page with like setting the boundaries and like? Um, you know, they they her brother and sister were adults, mm-hmm. and they set their own boundaries. Yeah. Um, we talked about things with Beth, and as you know, as things continued to the point where she went to recovery for the first time in 2014. Um, they. They decided what they wanted to hear. You know, I would say, 
I have this update on what's going on with your sister. Do you want to know? Mm -hmm. And they would tell me if they did or not. Um, her brother works in the service industry in Asheville, and she would sometimes show up where he was working yeah. or show up where he was playing with his band. And it was obvious <laughs> to him that she was not in good shape mm -hmm. and that he didn't know what to do, and that was really hard for him to deal with. It was a lot, a lot of conflict and a lot of hurt. But when she did go to a point of long-term recovery, um, she had sobriety at, for six months, I think. I'm, my dates are messed up in my head. Um, but when she went to treatment, they sent her notes and letters and, mm -hmm. and pictures and sent her packages. You know, they reached out to love and support her. And, and that was huge for her. So let's get into like a little bit about uh, a little bit of those attempts at recovery and like what that looked like. Um, okay. She went away after, I guess you said she was involuntary committed some time after she went away to outpatient yeah, treatment in, or inpatient treatment. In so kind of a timeline. Uh -huh. In 2011, she was involuntarily committed. She came out of that with a treatment plan of going to outpatient places mm -hmm. in Asheville. She managed to do that for about a week, and then she stopped. Um, about a year and a half later, um, she decided she was ready to get some help, and we took her to a, a local women's center. Um, it's a psychiatric unit, and she stayed there for about a week and left there. Um with a treatment plan that she did not follow up on. Mm -hmm. And not long after that, um, she went to a women's domestic violence shelter, and they helped her get into back into the same psychiatric unit. Um, she went from there back to the women's shelter, and we were desperately trying to find her a place to go. It was really hard at the time to find treatment in Western North Carolina. At the time, she didn't have insurance. And every time I called the local helpline that was supposed to be the helpline, I would get a different answer about, well, she doesn't have insurance, we can't help her. She has to have insurance. Or we can't help her if she does have insurance. And it was confusing and um, made things much more difficult. But uh, we finally managed to get her on my insurance you said that was a, a bit of a, a struggle, but you put in quite a bit of effort to make that happen, right? Jump through some hoops to um, get her on there? Yeah, my my boss had suggested that I put her on my insurance through work, and I didn't know that I could. When I called to ask about it, they told me that I would have to wait until open enrollment. And he was out of the office for two weeks. That and was like a few months down the road, right? There, yeah, that was this. Was so this was in March, and I was going to have to wait till January. Yeah. And he came, he came back from traveling, and the first thing he asked me when he came in the office was how my daughter was doing. And I, so I told, I updated him. He said, well, did you get her on the insurance? And I said, no. We, they told me I couldn't. So this is like at 11 o'clock in the morning. He made one phone call. At 1 o'clock in the afternoon, she was on my insurance. And at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, we picked her up, and we were on our way to Knoxville. 
to a recovery center inpatient. And she did really well there for a long time, mm-hmm. sort of. Yeah. <laughs> what was that experience like in Knoxville for not just her, but the entire family? Um, the trip there was scary um, because we thought she was going to die in the back seat of the car. But we also had to stop at Walmart to, every time Beth went to detox or a women's center or wherever she went, we had to replace all the things that she didn't have. So shoes and clothes and, you know, toiletries, a bag, just even a bag to carry her stuff in. And that's one of the things that's hard for parents is the shame of of having to do that, but also the financial burden. And it feels, it can feel like shame. And it feels like shame if you're struggling and you can't do that. So we had to stop it. Here we are taking her to treatment. We had to stop at Walmart. And the whole time we're in there and she's shopping like she's a Kardashian. And, <laughs> you know, and. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't want those shoes. But I'm like, she's going to get arrested for shoplifting. I know the second I turn my back, she's going to shoplift something and we're all going to go to jail. But um, we made it there. And it was the, like, we when we finally got her in there and we walked out, I just felt such an amazing sense of relief. It was incredible. She was close enough where we could go to visit when we were allowed to. Mm-hmm. Um the first week that she was there she wasn't allowed phone calls but I called every day with messages they would take messages and give them to her just you know we love you and we're proud of you Bubby loves you and Sissy loves you and they both want you to know they're thinking of you and I have the contents of her bulletin board from when she was in recovery there Mm -hmm. and those notes are all pinned up on her bulletin board she kept yeah she kept every single one of those. So um, we had good experiences there, and it was. Um, we also had some interesting experiences there. Her her friend told this story at her at Beth's memorial service about she got there a week after Beth was there, and um, they had to go to PE, right? So mm-hmm. and this young woman didn't have any shoes to wear to PE. And Beth said, well, I've got an extra pair of shoes. I'll loan you. And I'm like, I'm listening to her tell the story. She didn't have extra shoes. I just bought her one pair of sneakers. <laughs> That's all the shoes she had besides flip-flops. And, so, and then so Elliot says, and, and then the next morning I get on the van and I'm, we're leaving to drive to PE. And I'm like, where's Beth? And I turn around and look and she's sitting on the porch smoking a cigarette. And she just waves to me. And she gave me her only shoes. And... That was the kind of little thing that let me knew she wasn't as invested in her recovery mm-hmm. as she should have been. So do you think that she wasn't she wasn't invested in it, or could you identify any type of barriers that might have? Um, one thing that she told us in an early visit was she had a hard time. It was a it was a facility that um, was modeled on a twelve step program, mm-hmm. and she had a really hard time identifying a divine. Sure, she she didn't believe in that, and this is so. This is how smart she was, and how able she was to wrap her mind around things. We're talking with her one day, 
and she's like, I just don't even know. I don't even, I don't believe in God. I don't know even what happens. And I said, well, where do you think grandma and grandpa are, both of my parents who are dead? She said, well, I don't know, but wherever they are, they're together. And I said, and, and what do they mean to you? And she said, they're love. Grandma and grandpa just love me. I said, so why don't you let that be your divine? And she, until she died, that was her concept of the divine, that unconditional love that her grandparents had for her. Sure. Does that seem to be something that's common, James, in the field, is when you work with clients that just can't identify with these programs, or do more treatment centers open to other approaches and perspectives these days because of situations like that? I think today it's becoming more and more open and individualized. (coughs) For a long time it was, you know, if you don't work the 12 steps, then you're going to die, you know. And, um, you know, I got sober working the 12 steps, but I had to do the same mental acrobatics that um, Beth had to do as far as accepting concepts of a higher power and things Mm -hmm. like that, you know. Um, But today we got refuge, we have smart recovery, we got, you know, a lot of different The treatment center that I went to, they were very 12-step, like they were, that's all they, like you you check in, you work the 12 steps. However, they were open to other (coughs) approaches as long as you were doing the work. And so like when, but I had to bring it, I had to, bring it with me right Mm -hmm. so like Mm -hmm. i showed up on my first day with my refuge recovery book and he was like all right you're going to start working the steps my first individual session with my counselor and i was like well no i'm going to do this i'm going to work this program here he was all about it but there was other guys in my little pod who didn't bring an alternative Mm -hmm. but also didn't connect to the 12-step traditions but were forced to do that because they didn't and how many succeed it uh, we'll we'll cover that in another <laughs> 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 i mean you know that's what we're always saying is recovery always mm-hmm. and i'm <clears throat> i have several uh friends that are in recovery that use things like power lifting you know or yeah. fi- being physically fit you know doing putting investing into something other than that instant gratification that they get from using substances and i mean as you know, going through the peer support training and whatnot, you know, we're trained to accept all ways of recovery. And not only that, like, I know, I feel like you got to have that balance, mm-hmm. you know, yes. like spiritually, mentally, emotionally, you have to have physically, you have to have that balance. And spiritually, for me anyways, has been a huge you got, you got friends that do podcasts to support their <laughs> That's <Absolutely>. right. <laughs> exactly, yes. I mean, like you said earlier, this is part of my recovery. No I mean, I, you know, I have such a long history with 12 Steps and AA in particular. And I love that fellowship and it saved my life. Sure. It really did. Um, and, but to like your story, Steve, you know, having the refuge book and meditation, Mm-hmm. And you achieve sobriety through that. But I showed up with my own tools. Right? Yeah, but like the, you know, five years ago, I mean, like even still today, I'm still like, it blows my mind. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, is that possible? Yeah. And yeah, it is. Recovery always. Mm-hmm. There are many paths. It, and it's been a, um, 
a journey of awakening for me to kind of break out of that closed-mindedness and see that and that there are i think there are like three main um important domains that come with recovery which is connection to others Mm -hmm. it's like probably number one Mm -hmm. right and the opposite of addiction is connection um purpose you know whether it's a podcast or that community that you find yourself in and then uh like whatever tools you have to transcend you know and it's probably like a combination transcending like the you know the reasons why we use their Mm -hmm. triggers or the discomfort you know and you can find that in in so much you know it's up to you to figure it out. That's yeah. What, that's what I love about recovery is that you have that opportunity to let's reel it back in. She didn't connect with the 12 steps. She didn't connect with the 12 how steps. Did, how did she handle it with like the counselors or how did she or did she approach them at all? I mean, she fought with her counselors all the time. Uh-huh. Um, specifically on this topic specifically on every topic imaginable why can't i have my cell phone why can't i wear these shoes why can't i talk to the boys yeah you know but she, specific rules that are in place for a reason right yes like talking to the boys or, yes yeah um and she just had to try to manipulate everything i mean she was supposedly stabilized psychiatrically mm-hmm. um she was in a safe place she had food and she couldn't get beyond, I honestly think she could not get beyond all of her mental health issues to f- fully engage in recovery. Sure. Um, she had to do a vision board, and she'd been there uh, three months, I think, four months. On July 4th, we went to visit, and we had a picnic, and she was so proud of this vision board that she shared with Bill and I. And the backside was all the negative parts about addiction and what her life was like when she was in active addiction and the front side was supposed to be all the positives about being in recovery I mean and she looked fantastic she was healthy but she still talked all of this fighting street talk kind of stuff and one of the poems she had written on the positive side embracing her recovery uh, she said part of it says um, stubborn willing Come up from a hard fall, ugly, crying, stomp and scream. I know more than treatment team. And when she read that to us, the smirk on her face, when she said, I know more than treatment team, that was the same little girl that used to get in trouble in school. And she was 20-something years old at this point. Mm -hmm. But I knew then that things were not clicking. Sure. Red flags for sure. Red flags for sure. And then the next red flag that came up was when her counselors stopped returning our phone calls. Because uh-huh. we had a solid rapport with them and they were allowed to talk to us about how she was doing in treatment. Um, I actually had, I think, bi weekly um, counseling sessions with her over the phone. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, no one returned our calls. And I was like really mad at the program. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Then it finally clicked. And this is another thing that parents should remember. When your adult child is in a program and you've been allowed to talk to their doctor or their counselor, their therapist, their treatment manager, whatever, and all of a sudden you can't, that means something is wrong 
and your child has told them they cannot talk to you anymore. Sure. And that thought never crossed my mind until we spoke a few nights ago and it like clicked in my head. And my question would be to James is that like once a confidentiality confidentiality disclosure is signed, can it be it can be retracted? Yeah, by the client, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. They yeah. have one hundred percent control over Yeah. That. Okay. You know, and I and I have to say, because this is something that's come up several times when I've talked to people about IBC, you can't take away the right to do that. And you can't just automatically IVC people and make them go to treatment. Because once you do that, you're you're taking away their humanity and their rights. And that's an uglier, slippery slope, I think, than even addiction is. Mm-hmm. So you can't take away someone's right to say you can't access my medical records anymore. You have to respect that. And and there may be times that it's the client's, maybe the client really doesn't have a good relationship with their family. And, and so that's okay. But from this parent's perspective, it was a red flag. Well, I'm, you know, I don't know per like all the details, but I'm sure that there was some therapist there hopefully that had some serious conversations with Beth about like, we know what you're doing. You, we know what's going on. Um, you know, I would hope. We, we can see these games that you're... Yeah, yeah. I mean... Manipulation games or whatever they are that you're doing to your folks. Yeah. Because I know two other people who went through treatment there, one who went through twice and they're mm-hmm. successful in their recovery, I am sure it's an excellent program. And I am sure my daughter just manipulated her way yeah. around all the things that would have made her successful. It was just such a common practice with this disease. Right? Yes. Like, yeah. Self-sabotaging. Yes. Kind of um, whittling down all your opportunities till your brain just to convince you successfully like, eh, there's only one thing we can do now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the NC Raw family would love to recognize you and play your music on our shows if you're you or anybody you know is making positive or recovery related music in the western north carolina or anywhere uh, please submit them to us through our website or through our facebook page we would love to recognize you and play your music throughout our shows tonight we have a special first time band musician that we're going to feature who are we going to what who are we going to hear um you're going to hear so you're going to play it twice right yeah yeah. the first time you hear this song which is called rise up uh, you'll be hearing it played by my son justin brophy and his friends sammy guns and josh mcdowell um and josh was uh also an original member of Justin's band, The Go Devils. So Rise Up is a song that was Beth's favorite song that her brother played. And when she was in recovery, it was her anthem that she was going to beat everything and she would rise up. Mm. And she wrote to her brother and told him that. And after she died and we were preparing her celebration of life service, I didn't think that Justin could perform there. I thought it would be too hard for him. So I asked him if he would ask Sammy to play a song or two. Mm-hmm. 
And he said, Mom, if anybody is going to sing at Beth's service, it will be me. Hmm. And um, so he got together with Sammy and Josh, and they um, they did two songs. One was Johnny Cash's Bird on a Wire, hmm. which is just heartbreaking. But they also modified Rise Up from its punkabilly, rockabilly, wild, strong, just absolutely house-rocking tune to this kind of country-churchy hymnal thing. Um, They just softened it. And I will never forget the courage and the grace that my son showed to play this song for his baby sister. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. This is Rise Up by the Go Devils.
Welcome back to NC Raw. We'll finish up our conversation with the amazing Sherry Barker. Hey. And the rest of the NC Raw crew. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> what was life like in the early coping stages of your loss? No sleep, no eating. Um, we had to deal with some difficult things that, um, like I had, I wrote this long thing about things I, I learned dealing with addiction and the things that they don't tell you about, um, when your child dies from an overdose and it's an unattended death. It, there, an autopsy is automatically required. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know that. And we found out about Beth's death because someone that, um, someone whose house she was living in illegally, Facebook messaged Beth's dad and Beth's sister. Um, hey, are you related to Beth? She's dead. Not the best way to find out. Um, so we showed up at the um, at the house where she was, and the police were still there, and they wouldn't let us see her, and they told us to go to the hospital and that we would be able to see her there, which is not true. Um, so Beth died on a Monday, and we didn't get to see her until the following Friday. So wow. we were dealing with a lot of um, extra stuff because of the way things happened. And we have a friend, um, our very dear friend Kathy works for a a hospice, and the hospice offers grief counseling Mm -hmm. to anyone who's had a death. And she encouraged me to go. And I was like, I don't need counseling. I don't need help with this. I got this. And then I thought it might be helpful for Justin and Katie to process things if if we got some help together. And I asked them if they were willing to go, and they said yes. So we all went together for a couple of weeks, and the mom who didn't need counseling is the one who ended up staying in counseling. Mm. And uh, I would recommend grief counseling to anyone who is experiencing a loss. Um, The counselor helped me identify things like that the entire time I was dealing with Beth's illness, I was exposed to PTSD. Is it recurring PTSD? Over and over and over again, mm-hmm. the things that happened or traumatic events. And the way she died and the way we learned about her death, those were traumatic events. And when your body experiences trauma, your mind experiences it, it holds on to it in different ways. And it actually really holds on to it. So all these things come up that you're like, why did I do that? Why did I react that way? Well, it's, it's trauma and it's grief and it's okay and it's normal to feel that way. Um, the grief counselor encouraged me to write. She encouraged me to try some new creative expression. She suggested painting, which I thought was really funny because 
You know when you go to the zoo and you see the monkeys and they're painting with their own poop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's about how skilled I am at painting. <laughs> but I thought, okay, I'll try this. I will try painting. And a very kind friend helped me explore some different media. And I discovered that I love acrylics. And I discovered that I'm not bad at painting. Okay. And that was a really good way to be able to express my grief. Um And while I was trying, struggling to deal with things, I was oblivious to the fact that my husband was not dealing with things. Mm -hmm. And um, he was Beth's stepdad, but he loved her very much. And he was just as involved as I was in the attempts to help her. Okay. Um, And at uh, one point in the fall... After we had another loss in our family, uh, he just kind of lost it in a grief-filled way. Sure. And um, I know you can see me smiling, but he's making faces. Um, and he started going to an IOP program. And in the IOP program, he met someone from Refuge Recovery who invited him to a meeting. And he started going to refuge recovery meetings. And we knew about refuge recovery meetings because we had tried to get Beth to go to them. Okay. Because we thought they would be a good fit for her and that it would help her. Do you recall how you first kind of discovered refuge when you were attempting to get Beth to go? Or how um, Our friends, Kathy and Michael, were involved in, um, in that in the development of that in Asheville. And they had reached out to try to help Beth. Um, And she went to a meeting with them, and she liked it, but she just wouldn't go back. Had I, probably if I had known about refuge and I had gone to refuge, if I had understood that there are recovery meetings that are open to people who are suffering from anything and not just from addiction... I probably would have been able to handle all of my parts of stress. Mm-hmm. And and I'd have had a lot more knowledge. I'd have found an open knowledge pool to help Beth deal with her issues. Because the thing that I learned after Bill started going to refuge and I started going with him to be a support person for him was that there are communities that will help everyone who asks for help. And that was an amazing, healing, powerful thing to find. Sure. So is it safe to say that you're in recovery too? I am in recovery. It's not just the person experiencing substance use disorder, that it's also the family, the people, everyone involved are in recovery. (laughs) And you guys found your outlet. That is very well put. And that is exactly what it is. And that is where I met James was at refuge my boy yeah yeah uh, <laughs> jimmy james jimmy james, <laughs> jimmy james. <laughs> what was your first experience with james like because i got a lot of stories <laughs> <laughs> um i think he he was quiet and thoughtful what? yeah really yeah <laughs> um, go on go on and um can i just say this honestly from like 
the head down to the shoulders, you would think that, but then, like, just, I mean, maybe that's <laughs> labeling, but then you get to the tattoo-covered arms, and you're yeah. like, maybe he ain't so quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, he, he was thoughtful and insightful, and um, I had started giving some thought. You know, I talked earlier about I couldn't find any place for help. And then all of a sudden, all these people were asking me where they could go for help. Mm-hmm. And I had started thinking about maybe I should just start a group. And a mm-hmm. couple people told me I was crazy. These folks that were reaching out to you, were they like mutual friends or friends of friends? Friends of or, friends. Uh-huh. F- like people I, people who are Facebook acquaintances and not even really friends. Sure. People you, you might know. have not ever spoken to before, yes. but had come across your story. Yes, and I think that's because I was the entire time that I was processing what I was going through and some of what Beth was going through, I wrote about it and I shared it because I wasn't ashamed of it. My daughter was sick and she needed help and I needed help dealing with it and I needed a way to express it. So you were sharing these things from start to finish? From, yes. Like, from On a- social media. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah as an outlet and also to offer hope to those. Yes, exactly. And as a way of healing too, you know, right. our, our sharing our stories have a power to heal. Um, also shortly after Beth died, um, Bill and I did an interview with one of the only journalists in the Asheville area who we trust, John Boyle. And um, in the Citizen Times, just trying to get the story out there to make people aware that this happens to everybody. You know, a lot of people get caught up in thinking this this only happens to certain people. And my child would never do that. My child wouldn't do drugs. My child wouldn't drink. And I have learned that it happens across the spectrum. Absolutely, It doesn't matter what you're socioeconomic social status is this can happen to your family and the best way to get through it is to reach out to community to find a community that can support you and help you it's a very public way of coping right sharing on social media yes writing journaling the news story interacting with folks who we're looking for help. We also went to, um, I think less than a month after Beth died, we went to a county commissioner meeting mm-hmm. to ask them to consider implementing a, a program in Buncombe County that it's the Perry Program, Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative. Mm-hmm. And it's been hugely successful in more than 200 communities in this country. And Buncombe County commissioners were so kind and so graceful. And I spoke over the time limit as I shared our very sad story. You know, and they were moved to tears when I said that I had held my daughter's birth certificate in one hand and her death certificate in another at the same time. And no one should ever have to do that. And they asked for a copy of my speech when I was done. And as a county, they've done nothing more than a year after she died. Oh, we're very interested in that program. You know, so we were trying to 
take some steps to get something moving. You know, we took information to APD and we took information to the county sheriff. And there were several candidates in the recent sheriff's runoff in Buncombe Mm -hmm. County who were interested in the Perry program. But the people currently in positions to make decisions don't seem to be inclined to take action that is real. So in my experience right now, in the community that I live in, the most powerful groups to help each other are the seemingly smaller communities. That's absolutely what our vision for NC Raw is, to to identify these little pocket communities that are doing this type of work and collectively bring them together under this platform um, and able to give us the ability to like do the advocacy work like you speak of right. and get the people in office that will pull the pull the trigger on programs like that that will benefit the entire community. So you're working on building bridges. Building bridges. Connection. Yeah. Recovery allies. How long were you participating in refuge recovery before you started the mother to mother group? And what was that process like in starting the group? Um, I think I was involved with maybe four months in refuge recovery. Um, and I talked to a couple of people in refuge about starting a group. And I really wasn't sure. You know, I'm, I'm not a counselor. I'm a mom. Yeah. And this is my experience. And I can relate to other moms. That's um, what so many mothers need. Yeah, exactly. To to talk with a peer yeah. about what's going on and how to cope with it. But um, when I thought about starting the group and I was thinking, you know, maybe I could have guest speakers come. And then James sent me a link to his um, his counseling service. And I was like, this would be awesome because he's such a good speaker. Maybe I could ask James to come, but I'll wait a little while till we're, we're established. Mm-hmm. And um, it was 400 days from the day Beth died till the first mother-to-mother meeting happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, like, I remember the day in mid-February when I secured a meeting location. And I secured the meeting location because Bill leads a refuge recovery meeting on Monday afternoons at Sunrise Community in Asheville. And I was like, oh, they have meeting space. 3.30 on Monday at Sunrise. Be there. (laughs) One of the few daytime meetings. The only daytime meeting in Asheville. Cullowee's got a daytime we meeting, got two right? daytime meetings. Awesome sauce. Oh, right. Both colleges, but... Mm. Awesome. So I asked the people at Sunrise if I could use their meeting space, and um, it worked out really well. So for someone that might be interested in participating in that type of support group, like, what could they expect? What are the meetings like? What... Um. So we meet on Tuesday nights from 7 to 8.30 at Sunrise Community in Asheville. Who is it open to? Who, who? It is open to any mother mm-hmm. with a child who is struggling with any kind of addiction. Okay. Um, we have mothers with children in active addiction. 
mothers with children in early recovery, mothers with children in long-term recovery, and uh, a couple of mothers whose children have passed away. So it's the meetings are casual, and um, you know we have kind of a loose structure at the beginning. We do a meditation to kind of bring ourselves just quiet okay. time. So you're incorporating yeah. this mindfulness practice into exactly. Okay, um, and then we just talk about what we need to talk about. Um, there's no, you know, I'll think of ideas sometimes. Or if, you know, if there's nothing, I have like a loose plan mm-hmm. if someone doesn't have something they sure. want to talk about. But, sure. you know, you know how that goes, James, with trying to plan a meeting. You always have to put some stuff together and then it always just goes in the direction yeah. that it goes, right? Well, I mean, when I went and and sat at the mother to mother group, <clears throat> that's the way it was. It was, it was organic because everyone's sharing from their heart, yeah. you know. Um, exactly what takes place in every great meeting that I've been to. People are just sharing from their heart, from their experience, you know, and supporting each other. I love it. I just want to say that the whole time that you've been telling your story, I've in the back of my mind, I know of a group that it was, I think it was called like Mothers Against Addiction or something. Like we've mm-hmm. been trying to get them to change that name to, or Mothers Against Addicts or something like that. But, anyways, um, I mean, what really, what I love hearing about what you're saying is that, you know, that you are coming of a place of love, that you're sharing the meditation. It's, you know, in a meeting structure mm-hmm. because they were having their meetings, but it would just turn into like, a gossip column or a bashing, you know, like a, you know, like, well, let me tell you what my daughter did today. You know what I mean? And that's not, and the mother, she's a really good friend of mine, just basically had to just cut it off because she said, we're not doing anything. We're just talking about the problem. Mm. We're not getting anywhere with this. We're not helping each other heal in any kind of way. And so this is kind of inspiring me and, you know, lifting me up to kind of be able to help her because she's going through a lot of the same things. I mean, we were at the beach together last weekend, and she couldn't even enjoy the whole beach trip without things coming up, right. you know, and we right. were away. So, I mean, she's going through it, and so you, you're, you've you inspired me tonight. <laughs> well, and she can always reach out to me on Facebook. Absolutely. I'm we're- willing to talk to anybody. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Connect it to y'all. <laughs> she, um, we, you know, in the in the group, we sometimes it's funny because everyone who's attended is a considerate person, and so you know, someone will pour their heart out, and then they're like, "I'm sorry, I took all the time," <laughs> and everyone else is like, "No, you needed to talk about that." Mm-hmm. But we always find constructive things to talk about, and how are you going to move past that? What do you think you can do? What about these suggestions? And everybody gives. So it's an open dialogue. It's an open dialogue. Okay. Everybody gives the totally different meeting component is crosstalk is completely allowed (laughs) um you know because it's just it's everyone sharing and listening and um like though like a meeting it's completely anonymous you know their compassion respect confidentiality 
those are some of our key tenants. So anyone who comes to a meeting, that stuff stays there, you know. And um, I think that's really important because not everyone is open about having addiction or any kind of illness in their family. So, but the night that James came and talked with us, we talked about boundaries, yeah. how to establish them. And Let's talk about that a little bit. Mm. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you need another Red Bull, man? <laughs> no, I'm good. How'd the, how'd the talk go? It was awesome. It, was, it felt so good in that meeting, for real. Um, you've definitely set a tone of healing and compassion and... Thank warmth you. and inclusiveness seriously mm-hmm. like you can feel that in the meeting and i really loved um when you opened the meeting and went through some of the like just preliminary reading and guidelines you said something i forget how it was worded but it was like um we allow we allow crosstalk i think it was or maybe you oh the cell phone thing maybe yes okay this is Part of Sherry's brilliance, you know. Um, in the first meeting with the first moms that were there, I asked them what they wanted to do about cell phones in the meeting. And we decided together that this was not a meeting place where you have to turn off your cell phone. Yeah. Because when you're the parent of someone who is in active addiction or even the parent of someone in active recovery, not thinking that your child can't reach you if they need you is anxiety-inducing. Sure. And so that is, we we silence our phones, but we don't turn them off. The concept so. to allow the group to make that decision, yeah. and it serves such a valuable yeah. purpose. Like, Yeah, and just to acknowledge that, I think, to allow that space is uh it speaks to the inclusiveness and just you know the respect of allowing everybody in that meeting to be exactly where they are exactly you know? yes um, thank you and yeah i had a i had a really good time uh, we didn't just talk about boundaries yeah, yeah. i think we jumped around we talked to like about 20 a lot different of things topics yeah it was great mm-hmm. but um yeah you know i i love working with parents uh, um I feel like it's such a passion for me because, you know, I'm able to be that detached, objective observer and um, and just understanding, like, what is going on in the addict's perspective and helping a parent to come to understand those things as well while empowering them to regain their – what what I've heard coined as their parenting self-esteem, you know, to like, it is okay to have boundaries. It is okay to say no. Um, It's okay to leave my phone on and it's okay to turn my phone off. You know, like just all those things. I think, um, you know, like your friend that you said couldn't enjoy the beach trip. And my hope is that no matter what happens to a parent's kid, you know, whether they get sober or they don't, the parent will be able to find their way to hope and healing to where they can enjoy their life, you know, because it does. And you brought up the fact that it's like a family illness, you know, at the beginning. <clears throat> and so it's really important for parents to understand that 
they have a part to play in everyone's recovery as well. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's not necessary for a parent to to be involved in the recovery process for themselves, for their child to get sober, but it doesn't hurt, you know, it, it, it helps the chances actually, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, we, we covered all that kind of stuff. You saying that, I'm sorry. So you saying that just really made me think like, you know, with the family being involved and being a family illness, you know, what if, what would it look like if, because, okay, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but um, if we took the anonymity out of it, if not, you know, having boundaries to where, you know, like was said here stays here, you know, if it, if it's, if don't go out just blasting anything, you know, that's said here, have respect, but at the same time, you know, stepping up and saying, hey, we're mothers going through recovery too. We're mothers that are, you know, are in recovery with our children or our husband or our you know spouse, whatever, and saying, you know, we're talking about this. We're talking about this issue. We're um, trying to come to healing. Does that make sense? Are you yeah. guys kind of catching where sense. I'm going with that? That's what she did. You know, I mean, that's what you did is you – um, and that's amazing. You, yeah, you know, because you you are going stigma. through your own process of healing, and you put it out there really to the world. And what happens is like, oh, I ha- I know someone, I know someone, I know someone that needs that, you know. And so, because in you know, you were able to. I mean, you just didn't have the fear of the stigma, or you know what I'm saying. And yeah. so you were able to put it out there and um and look what happened. You know, now the support group is there. I mean, I, I agree that is you know, the I the stigma is ridiculous, you know. It is. I have a friend who deals with her son's illness with love and compassion. He's in early recovery, he's doing fantastic. She's so proud of him. I'm so proud of him. I got to hug this kid last week and tell him I'm proud of him. He's amazing. And the people she works with act like it's nothing. They they just black it out, you know. She wants to brag about him and they can't they blame him for his illness. So <clears throat> Just, you know, a piece at a time, a person at a time, an office at a time, we just have to keep working to win people over. You know, I've had a lot of people talk to me. You know, there were times I was I was so angry about Beth's death that I couldn't stand to be around people who were in recovery. It made me angry. Or in and I had to process why did I feel that way. And I acknowledged that that anger was really grief and vulnerability. And I wasn't really mad at them. I was mad about a lot of other things. And being around people who are in recovery, hearing recovery stories, talking with other mothers about their children, 
It's just a constant reminder of hope and a constant reminder that I was right to never give up hope on Beth. Even even when I wasn't sure she could make it, I still had that hope that she could. You know, it just is... Um, it just is going to take work. I mean, talking about it openly with my boss at work, which at first I was hesitant to do. And we've had amazing discussions about addiction, and it's opened up his mind about how people deal with illness and addiction and changed his perspective on what he sees in his work environment. Let's just think about that comment for a second because you're you're talking about it kind of goes back to the stigma. You're talking about your boss, who's someone that you obviously had a fairly good relationship because he helped you get her on your on yes. the insurance mm-hmm. yeah. to get her treatment. So he was like involved in that process, yet you were still somewhat hesitant to use your voice, right? Well, you just at first, yeah. I mean, I had been in that office for, I know, like about not even a year. Yeah. But things were escalating with Beth to a point where I had to make phone calls during the workday, and I had to go to him and say, this is what's going on with my daughter, and I need to make these personal calls. Is this okay with mm-hmm. you? And he was just super supportive. So That's great. Um, go union anytime you can, people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's a um, different show's topic. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, you know, he if he had been a different person, mm-hmm. I might not have had some of the best memories that I have with Beth. Sure. Because you wouldn't have been able to. Exactly. That was amazing. And it also took you, though, stepping up and advocating for her and her needs and not being afraid of that. Yeah. Because you said, I need my daughter on my insurance, you know. I need to get her help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you exhausted your resources. You called the eight hundred number and you tried to get help. She didn't have insurance. Exactly. Took the steps to. So I'm glad you brought that up because now this is really heavy on my heart. Like that just gave me earlier when you ha- were talking about her being at the store and shopping like a Kardashian and all that, and to go to rehab, like our recovery our res hope recovery house you know we're in consulting we want to be able to you know help pay for individuals that you know if they got to pay to go to detox or pay for whatever to Mm -hmm. go to rehab we want to be able to raise funds to pay for those things so they don't have that hesitation like no we can get you help now but also that really like snap or lit the light bulb in my head is I want to be able to offer you know if they if they need shampoo shoes whatever that and they don't have it to go to rehab and you do need those things you know and to be able to pay for those things let me tell you about a thing that we did with Beth I told these guys about it the other night check this um right take notes (laughs) you know there were times in her early addiction and early attempts at recovery. Um, I was not working. I was in school. Bill was out of work. We didn't have money. And so if she had a need, we would actually like pawn something to 
do what she needed to do, you know, to buy her what she needed to go to detox or recovery. And when we got financially stable after I finished school, and I'm going to back up a minute and say that people need to not be ashamed when they're in that position because not ever, and I know people who have like, you know, double mortgaged their house to deal with their child's addiction issues. It hits everybody. But so when we got to where we were financially stable, we decided we'd get ahead of the game. So there wasn't always a crisis. And we just bought one of those plastic totes and, and it was a hope chest. And we filled it with you know, shampoo and the special shampoo and conditioner that she had to have because she had just the most beautiful, what her sister called mermaid hair, mm-hmm. um, you know, toothbrush, toothpaste. And and by this time, we'd had enough experience that we knew what was and wasn't allowed in certain places. So, you know, shoes without laces, pants, you know, comfortable pants without laces, mm-hmm. um, journals, pens, all the kind of stuff that she would need when she was starting in a new place. And and her sister helped me pick out the clothes that went into it. And Beth knew that. So she knew that we had this investment in her, this hope for her that she could do this. At and any time that she was ready to. At any time she was ready and it wasn't going to be a burden because she worried about that sometimes. Mm-hmm that she was a burden on people. So just having that hope chest. You're amazing. And that's so beautiful. That is. Did she know that you had it? She yeah. knew that we had it, and she knew the conditions for for um, the, being able to access the contents of it. Um, I mean, think about just having that physical embodiment of your parents' love and hope for you, Mm -hmm. just sitting, you know, waiting, waiting for you to make that call. That's a mustard seed. That is, I mean, that's like, (laughs) powerful. just sitting there waiting. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Res Hope needs some. Oh, yeah. What would it look like if you could be able to call Res Hope and be like, yes, Yeah, we have everything, just come. Like, just, just come. Down. We got everything you need. We got hope, hope chest filled. Got a closet full yeah. of hope chest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so beautiful. Absolutely. Well, I've got a, um, a community of people who are often willing to help do things like that. So send me a message yes. and we can work on that together. Absolutely. I'm ready. You mentioned you're a writer. I am. You had a poem published? I did. This year? I did. What does that look like? Sound Um, like? Read like? How much of it do you want me to share? We got time. How Uh, much of a hurry are you to get out of here? Ask my driver. He's he's asleep (laughs) over there. What are you talking about? (laughs) Um, So this is actually a compilation. He's meditating. He's meditating. (laughs) (laughs) This is a compilation of poems that I had written throughout the years that Beth was sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Traveling the Crow Road with My Daughter. And the Crow Road is loosely in Irish terminology about the road to death. Um, it's 
The Crow Road is actually a book on my bookshelf, mm-hmm. and one of the few books she she Beth was an avid reader, but she um, that declined. Mm-hmm. But that was a book that she had read, and we had talked about. So, um, I mean, this is long, but I'll share it. Share as much as you would like. Um, the this poem is published in an anthology called the My Traveling Uterus which is an anthology of writings by women about travels, mm-hmm. all different kinds, actual physical travels, met- metaphorical travels, and this. From the moment I knew you were an addict, I faced every aspect of your disease head on. I did not shy away from confrontation with you or the people in your life who hurt you. I was staring down dealers and other criminals long before I owned a gun. I took you out of parties and flop houses any time, day or night, that you called me, crying, asking for my help, even when my only backup was 800 miles away. I did not shy away from holding you when you were sick, brushing your hair, washing your face, washing your hands. I fought nurses who tried to treat you like your illness made you less than human. I fought dealers at my door, the magistrate, APD, BCSD, your addict friends, your boyfriend, your father, and you. Always you. You fought back harder than any of them, only rarely able to believe that we were on the same side, you and I together, as we had been from the first stirring of life in my womb. When I finally had someone to fight by my side for you, Team Beth accomplished things I never thought possible, including getting you into into safe space. But as always, your November storms were the most fierce, and you disappeared again. There were days that the skies were gray when I woke, and when I rose from my bed, they would reach for me. I opened my arms to slip effortlessly into them, putting on my mourning robe. That is how it was to live in mourning for someone who was not dead, someone who was so far gone that I could not touch her someone who was so lost in the shadows of her own mind that communication only happened through the veil between the worlds. The phone became a Ouija board, and I could not understand the messages you were sending. The planchette moved in endless, random circles. Spirit, can you hear me? Is anybody there? Then the long-dreaded phone call came, and my head-on confrontations left me no corner in which to hide. Years ago, I faced the reality of the likelihood of your death. I made hard decisions and careful plans, some of which worked out after the day I can only think of as Monday. Part of my plan was to wash and brush your hair for you, to wash your face and hands. Those simple tasks are a mother's most basic expression of love, yet the circumstances of your death deprived us both of those moments together. I cried and breathed my way through the pain of your leaving in the same way I cried and breathed my way through the pain of your first arrival. Five days after Monday, when I was finally able to see you, I had to see you by myself before I would allow anyone else in. Wasn't that the way it was when you were born to me? I had long wondered if I could do it, but that long wondering gave me space to prepare myself. Head held high, shoulders back, I walked to you, steady on my feet and steady in my heart, bringing you gifts of comfort for your journey. Honoring the vessel of your precious spirit was important to me. 
I am grateful we had that time together, and like everything about you, I faced it head-on, because I love you too much to sweep your truths away like inconsequential dust. Since that Monday, I have faced your absence in the same way I faced your illness. I do not think of you as gone, only away, traveling the Crow Road. You are simply journeying without me until we can be together again. When you visit me now, in my dreams, it is with your head held high, your shoulders back, you are steady on your feet, smiling, those magical blue eyes are clear. You communicate with ease, by words or graceful gestures, and we are steady in our hearts together. Thank you, Sherry. It's beautiful. Thank you. That was amazing. I'm in awe. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was amazing. Thank you. I um I have to say I appreciate the women who gave me the encouragement and opportunity mm-hmm. to publish that piece. One of those women was Byron Ballard, who stood with us through Beth's illness and through the day that we got to see her and through her service. And um, I really don't know what we would have done without her. Mm-hmm. So Byron, if you ever hear this, thank you again for being who you are. Before we close out the show, we're going to end on Caitlin's favorite. I love this part. Part of the show. Yay, Caitlin. (laughs) I'll show each of you two a random picture that I selected from your Instagram or Facebook page. And I'd like to know the story behind the photo. Okay. Just give me a little brief description of what happened, what was taking place. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, dude. You know I went back to your old Facebook page, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's start with Sherry. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. All right. I'll, I'll pass it around so everybody sees it. I'll show her first so that she can start the story, and then we'll we'll talk. So what's going on right there? What is it? What's going on? Oh, I know what that is. What? Naked baby pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and now Justin and Katie are wondering which one of them is the naked baby. <laughs> um, I found the absolutely most amazing book this year, which at this moment, let me, I should have done this. Give me a second here. So I had to catch you off guard. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all. Wake up, Facebook. It doesn't want to wake up. There we go. Gotta keep them guessing. Dead set on living? No, not that one. Not dead set on living. I did. I did see that you were reading that. It's one on my yeah. on my list of reads. Shout to, out Chris Grosso. Yeah, it's on my list of the thirty-seven books I plan to read this summer. I'm on it. I have Facebook friends, so I invited him to watch the show tonight. Actually, did you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he, he did. I'm sure Apparently he's Apparently I'm a prolific haha. Facebook picture poster. So this book is called The Lost Words by Robert McFarlane and it's about 
like kind of magical, normal, everyday words <laughs> that are disappearing from children's lives. Okay. So there's a poem that goes with that. Mm-hmm. It's actually an illustration for this book, which is filled with the most beautiful, lifelike illustrations I've ever seen in a children's book. So the poem that goes with this is, Let new names take and root, thrive and grow. I'm going to interrupt and say that goes back to what you were saying about getting away from using the word addict. Let new names take root, thrive and grow. Tick-tock, sun clock, rattle and dock. I would make you some, such as bane of lawn perfectionist, or fallen star of the football pitch, or scatter seed, but never would I call you only, merely, simply weed. Mm. Yeah. That was, that was good. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Can you describe the picture real quick so the oh, listeners it's might? A, it's a picture. It looks like a pressed dandelion plant. There are the leaves, and there are two yellow dandelion flowers and one that's gone to seed. So it's just wishes that are waiting to happen. Awesome. Ready, James? Yeah. Bring it. I got this one off your Instagram from October 20th of last year. Okay. Ready? I'm I'm taking it easy on you. Oh, man. (laughs) That is when I was Uh. illegally streaming games. (laughs) What games? The The World Series? The World Series. Yeah, the World Series championship, actually. Game <laughs> seven, Houston Astros. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. That was a... You're a baseball fan. That was a stressful night. Yeah, it yeah. was. You're a baseball fan? I am. We enjoyed a few games last year. That's right. Chicken wings. Yep. Ball games. So Chicken who, wings, hot dogs, and ball games. Who won that game? The Astros. Who won the World Series? <laughs> yeah. His team. The Houston Astros. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. Go Home Astros. Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Not a sports fan. (laughs) (laughs) They scored many touchdowns. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Sherry, back to you. Okay. Your final picture of the day. Go, I'm ready. I'm ready. Ready? Yeah. Uh Aha. He's going to love this one. Uh huh. (laughs) Give me a second. (laughs) I don't know what's taking place here. <laughs> Give me a second. Interesting. <laughs> Can you see the date on that? No, I sh- downloaded Just it earlier. It's okay. It's okay. No, she's looking for the the caption. Okay. I should I should have wrote down the caption. It's, it's okay. okay. We're in a rush. We didn't create a new caption. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's right. Well, essentially, Make a meme. I can tell you that. <laughs> that yeah, that is a man vindicated. Um, this is a picture of. Bill Rhodes uh-huh. holding, I think, a mop. No. A painter's oh, pole. No, I know. It's a painter's pole. A couple of years ago, we had gone camping at Cades Cove. Part of my, oh, it was just a year ago. A year and a half. Part of my 50th birthday celebration month. We did all the things. We went camping at Cades Cove. And we needed another <laughs> tent pole to hold up one of our tarps. And so we left the cove and hit up this hardware store where there were no tent poles and he's like this will work this painter's pole will work i'm like that will not work he said well it'll work and plus we can use it again and i'm like that will not work i'm telling you that's not gonna work he's like it will work so we get back to the campsite it works (laughs) 
And I'm like, you're only half right because we're never going to use that again. (laughs) And then last summer when we built the amazing deck and he had to paint the amazing deck, what did he get out of the shed from the camping supplies? Yes. This painter's thingy-ma-bob. And so he is a man vindicated. Absolutely. Standing there holding his painter's pole. That's a handy tool. Twice vindicated. Paint roller, man. You can't have so. too many of those in your tool shed. <laughs> that is that story. Nice. Awesome. I love it. All right, James. Last one of the evening. Okay, let we're- me just say, too, since we're recording this, that... I actually did not illegally stream. (laughs) 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 That was MLB.com. Allegedly. Correct. Allegedly. That was just a screenshot. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't own a TV, so. That's so funny. All right, go ahead. Ready? Last picture. Oh, yes. What's taking place? Describe the picture first and tell us what happened. There is a beautiful... Mountain scene, two beautiful people lovely mm-hmm. standing majestically, gazing out into the blue sky, uh-huh. the green mountain tops. That's me and my really good friend Joy, uh-huh. uh, hamming it up for the picture. And I'm wearing a spectacular tie dye that I actually did myself. Nice and beautiful. blue overalls. Congratulations. You are, because uh, I live in Asheville. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we wear. You, you went through an overall phase last year. It was a New Year's resolution. That's right. Okay. My New Year's resolution last year was to start wearing overalls on a consistent basis and switch from blue to or Black switch, to blue. Yeah. We did that together. Blue pins. I rocked, I rocked blue every day of 2017. I crushed my New Year's. Blue ink. So did I. Excellent. I even posted it on my Instagram. Congratulations. On June, January 1st, I posted on my Instagram a copy of my blue pen <laughs> that I used every single day in 2017. That's awesome. And then I lost it in 2018. <laughs> there you I'm go. sorry. Back to black. Attachments, man. I know. I let it go. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. I hope that you enjoyed it. Thanks to Bill for sitting in for two and a half hours and being a part of the show. Thanks, Caitlin, for sitting in with us. Absolutely. And my brother, James. I love you, bro. Love you, too. Appreciate you being here. James is awesome. Well, I just hope that there's a lot of people out there that listen to Sherry's story. Mm. You know, I mean, I came here to support. I came here with Sherry. I thought I was here to support you. No, no. (laughs) No. You're sneaky. You need to get your story out. Uh-huh. Well, you're both welcome back anytime. I think there's a whole lot more that we could uh, get to down the road. So open invite. Excellent. We're cranking up the content. would actually probably be interested in doing a follow-up show with you. Sure. Maybe, that'd be great. Maybe on that beautiful deck doing some painting with Courtney. Courtney. <laughs> we could We could even finger paint like monkeys. She's all over us. No feces. (laughs) Acrylics. (laughs) Acrylics. I just want to say real quick, you're amazing. Your story has touched my heart deeply and you've you've definitely given me some inspiration. So I know that the listeners will definitely get something from your story. And thank you. You are you're beautiful and you have you have a story to share, that's for sure. So I appreciate you. You're amazing. We're going to close out the show 
Thanks to Justin. Oh, the original Go Devils version of Rise Up. The original version. Get ready to dance. Rock on. Rock on. Thanks for listening to NC Raw, Recovery Always. The NC Raw family would like to thank today's musical contributors, Rival, whose work can be found on Facebook, SoundCloud, and YouTube by searching Rival727, and the Go Devils, whose work can be found on iTunes, Pandora, and Spotify. All of our NC Raw content is available by visiting our website at www.ncraw.life. Please be sure to subscribe to the site to receive exclusive content offers that will be sent directly to your inbox. And be sure to like our Facebook and Twitter page at WNC Raw. Thanks for tuning in.